Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. If you're new with us this morning, welcome. And I'll let you know that we at Wildwood work through verses of the Bible. We, we work through books of the Bible, kind of one passage at a time. And uh, Romans 9 through 11 is a difficult passage. It's a difficult three-chapter section of the Bible, but we are committed. It is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word, and we don't shy away from it. Uh, but uh, we, we love God's word, and we preach it, and we teach it uh, the way that I believe that it's supposed to be uh, handled. Uh, you know, there's a point in which the created, meaning you and I, must remember and not just, not just say, but really grasp that we are not the creator. And that our ways are not divine ways. And our thoughts are not divine thoughts. And our understanding is not divine understanding. And I think that is sort of the conclusion that Paul comes to at the end of Romans 11. He says in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? So after Paul spends three chapters laying out the case of divine election, you remember he's, he's answering the question, why is it that that many Jews have rejected the Jewish Messiah and the gospel that came to the Jews. Why, why would they reject that? And now he's answering that question. He spends three chapters talking about God's sovereignty, and at the end of that, the, conclusion, the concluding thought is the depth of God's mind. Speaking of depth... Did you know that the average swimmer can swim about 20 feet deep and resurface safely? You, free, the average free diver, the average person can dive about 20 feet deep safely. The world record holder, a Russian, dove 512 feet. I've read that he can hold his breath for like 23 minutes. He dove 512 feet and resurface 512 feet with no oxygen. That's pretty, that's incredibly deep. What is that, 25 times the average human being? That's incredibly deep, but, but, but deep must be put into perspective. 512 feet is deep, but it's not even close to the deepest lake in the United States, known as Crater Lake, at 1,900 feet. Four times the depth of the the capacity of, of the world record holder free diver. But that's not even the deepest lake on the planet. The deepest lake on the planet is Lake Baikal in Russia. It's over 5,300 feet deep. And of course, you know that the oceans are much deeper. The average, according to the National Ocean Service, the oceans average 12,000 foot of depth. But wait, there's more. I think it's called Mariana Trench. It's the deepest part of the ocean known as Challenger Deep. It's 35,876 feet deep. 
Now, I'm not just giving you facts. I, I'm, I'm painting a picture here. I want you to imagine the scene, okay? The average person can dive about 20 feet. The deepest part of the ocean is 35,876 feet. Now, imagine the scene. You're on a vacation at the beach, and your child, your adolescent son, runs up out of the ocean, out of the beach, gasping for air, excited, bending over on his knees, says, Mom and Dad, I just swam to the bottom of the ocean. I swam down 100 feet. I've been to the bottom. How would you respond? You say, that's awesome, bud. That is awesome. I didn't know you could hold your breath that long. That is really cool. But we need to gain some perspective here, bud. The ocean is way deeper than 100 feet, and you really went down 15. <laughs> but it's awesome still. Now, bring this back to the discussion. I'll, I'll just come back here to Romans 9 through 11. And, and, and Paul says, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Now, you and I have logic. The Lord has given us, that's, that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We have capacity to reason, to think, to comprehend, to work things out, right? Now, in your mind, you're trying to cut the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You, you, you're trying to find the solution. You, you're trying to find the answer so that, that you're no longer uncomfortable with this idea that God is sovereign and man is responsible. And you think that you've found the solution. You think you've got it. I think God might say to you, good job, bud. I didn't know you could go that deep. Good job. But let's gain some perspective. And at the end of the day, remember that my thoughts are not his thoughts. And my ways are not his ways. And I have a very limited capacity. This is not to, to, to discourage going deep into the word. But let's remember as we dive deep that there's a little bit of a limitation of how deep we can really go. You know, the reality is that Paul felt zero inclination to relieve that tension. He was content to live in the tension of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. As, as uncomfortable as that might be for modern American evangelicals. Paul did not feel the need to perfectly explain what he knew was inexplicable. It's just there. God is sovereign and man is responsible. In fact, this is a tension that we find throughout Scripture. I want you to think about the very familiar story of Joseph who was sold into slavery in Egypt and his response to his brothers was this, you meant evil against me. That's human responsibility. You're accountable. You did this, and that was sin. 
but God meant it for good. Not, not God turned this around and, and repurposed and, and plan B, but no, God planned this for good. Namely, that the people of Israel would be spared of the famine in the land. Think about Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, which makes it even more clear. He rebukes the, the, the primarily, it's primarily uh, Jews. They've come from all over the world, but they're primarily Jew. They're there for, for, uh, for Jewish celebration. And he preaches to them. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, divine sovereignty, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, human responsibility. It was God's plan and you're responsible. Peter made it clear that as moral agents, they were responsible, they were culpable for their sin, just as Joseph's brothers were culpable for their sin. Even though God used their actions to achieve his purposes. That's the tension, and the Bible doesn't alleviate the tension, and far be it from me to even try to alleviate the tension. It's just there. God is sovereign, man is responsible. Now let's look at what Paul had to say here in Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have given us what you want us to know. And you have, you have graciously revealed part of yourself and part of your ways and part of your plans and part of your thoughts. But Lord, you are deeper than challenger deep. And there's no way that we are going to, to plumb the depths of our creator God. Lord, help us to be faithful with what you have given to us and help us to live in the tension rather than deny it. Lord, we give you glory and praise because you are due that. And we thank you for mercy because we are not due that. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Now, I want you to look back up into verse 18, and you're gonna, or, or the verse 14. You're going to see that Paul addresses the opposition in the collective plural. What shall we say? Now he focuses his rebuttal to the singular personal perspective. 
you will say to me, perhaps now he has in mind a a particular person or a particular group of people. And the objection that he anticipates is how can it be fair that God would hold Pharaoh accountable for a hardened heart if God is the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Now, from a human perspective, that seems like a reasonable line of questioning. That seems like reasonable logic. Paul, if God is sovereign, as you say, then who can resist his will? And if no one can resist his will, why does he still find fault? From a human perspective, that seems logical, but it hides a rebellious spirit that does not allow God the right to sovereignty while also holding man responsible. It's a blasphemous allegation that somehow God is unjust which is what Paul asked in the previous section. Is there injustice on God's part? Paul didn't just speculate. Paul, Paul had reason to believe. Maybe, maybe this was the, objective, uh, the objections elsewhere. People would ask him, well, that's not fair, Paul. It puts man on the judge seat and God on the dock. It reverses the roles here. And that can only come from a place of rebellion. So he responds sharply in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? I think about about God's response to Job when he says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? I, I, I want you to imagine... God saying these words to you. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Now, Job got the message, and by the end of that interchange, a very contrite Job responded, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job was not ready to dive that deep. Imagine, you know, you're boasting in in how deep you can go, and someone says, all right, let's go. Let's go out to the the middle of the ocean over the challenger deep and say, let's go. Let's dive, realizing you are not prepared to go that deep. I've said it before that God can handle our doubts and our sincere objections or or our sincere, not objections, but our sincere efforts to understand. I believe that it pleases the Lord to pursue clarity, to, to pursue understanding, to wrestle with this. What Paul rebukes here is not a contrite heart searching for clarity. When he uses the term answer back, what he what he's saying is talking back. You ever have kids that talk back? Of course you do, right? And the issue is not that they would utter words. It's not that they would ask a question in humility or try to understand, but rather that they are expressing their rebellious attitude towards you. You don't have the right to do that to me. 
I'm entitled to make my opinion known to you. That is what Paul means when he says, answer back. It's an air of rebellion. It, 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 the audacity, again, I, that is the, I think that's the best word for this. The audacity of man to talk back to God and say, you're unfair, you're unjust. I deny you the right to sovereignty because I, I want to be sovereign. I, 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 my sense of right and wrong governs my world. Paul continues in verse 20, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Now this is not to demean humanity. Humanity is created uniquely in the image of God. We are image bearers. We're the height of creation. But at the end of the day, that's what we are, creation. And we were made from the dust. So it's an apt illustration. We are the created and God is creator. Can a pot argue with a potter that he should have been made into something more noble, something more honorable? Suppose a basic pot used to hold grain says, you know, I really should be a vase put on display. Does that pot have the right to condemn the potter from making the pot according to his own plan and desire? Does it have the right to talk back to the potter in condemnation? He asked in verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now the pot and the potter theme was not new to Paul. It's something that his audience would have been familiar with, especially his Jewish audience, because it comes straight from the Old Testament. Consider these two passages in Isaiah. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? And woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? By appealing to the pot and the potter theme, Paul is insisting that God has the right to do with humanity as he chooses. And he continues in verse 22 and 3. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. What we have here in Paul's rhetoric is a conditional statement. A usually a conditional statement will have both an apodosis and a protasis, a condition and a conclusion. But what we have here is a protasis without an apodosis. Or excuse me, I have those backwards. It doesn't matter. You'll forget it. And I'll forget it too. But what we have here is a protasis without an apodosis, a condition without a conclusion. He says, what if God, that's the protasis, that's the condition. What we expect to come next is the apodosis, the concluding thought. What if God did this, then what? 
without the epidosis, the reader is left to make our own conclusion, which apparently in Paul's mind was self-evident. He felt no need to draw the conclusion because he believed that it was self-evident. What if God, dot, dot, dot. What if God, and now you finish this and you finish this. What if God, and it doesn't really matter what follows what if God, because God is perfectly sovereign and perfectly holy. And so everything he does is right and good and just. So what if God does X, you finish the statement. The statement is, who can judge him? Who can level an allegation? Who can bring a charge against him? He has the right to do that because he's holy and sovereign. So what if God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, why would God endure with much patience vessels who will one day face destruction? uh, destruction? What purpose does that serve? Two purposes. First, it heightens the contrast between mercy and wrath. We would have no reference point of mercy if we did not know wrath. If we did not understand, if we did not observe God's wrath, we would have no reference for mercy. It heightens the appreciation of those who have been spared judgment because God's just judgment is going to be filled with glory. I, I struggle to, to capture the right word for this. I'm not saying that, that, I, that, I, that I think it's going to be beautiful. I think it's going to be full of awe. We're going to be, we're going to be stricken by this those who observe it safely, it is going to be full of glory. When you read the book of Revelation, which to the persecuted church was a source of real hope, God wins. And when you read the book of Revelation, you see the glory of God's judgment. Our Savior is King Jesus. And he comes back on a white stallion and a double-edged sword comes from his mouth and he destroys his enemies. And it is going to be full of glory. And if we did not observe the wrath of God, then we would not appreciate his mercy. If you don't realize that you need to be saved from God's wrath, then why would you appreciate the gospel of grace and mercy? God's judgment of the rebellious world who snub their noses at him and exalt themselves is going to be, you know, the English language perverts so many words But I think that the word here is terrific, as in terrifying. It's going to be full of terror. It's going to be full of awe. 
And, and how much greater will the mercy of God be experienced by those who observe such awful judgment? That's the first, the first thing. It heightens the contrast between wrath and mercy. Because mankind continually stores up God's wrath. Every day that we live, we sin. Even those who have been born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Every day we live, rebels mock and revile and curse God. And it's not right. So, so much of how we feel about election and how we feel about wrath is man-centric. But how dare we take a man-centered approach to God? God is holy, and how dare anyone transgress a holy God? And the fact that he bears with them and with us patiently, you know, he had the right to annihilate at the very beginning. He could have crushed Adam and Eve, and he would have been no less perfect. He would have been no less complete. He doesn't need you and me. He could have crushed Adam and Eve right there in the garden, and all of eternity would have been just as glorious to him. And yet he waits with patience. He endures the mocking, reviling, cursing, the sin of rebellious people who look at him and snub their nose at him. Imagine this from God's perspective. How long, how long would you tolerate an ungrateful rebellious, mocking, cursing, reviling nephew in your home? How long? Doesn't obey your rules? Walks around with a constant attitude, a chip on his shoulder? Takes you for granted? Curses you to your face? and mocks you to his friends and does things in your home that you would never allow your children to do, how long would you bear that injustice? Right? Oh God, it's not fair that you would wait 6,000 years Think from God's perspective. The second purpose is that the Lord's patience allows time for sinners to repent. Right now, you might be grieving the future fate. When you think about God's wrath, you better be thinking about the future fate of people you love. Because unless they repent and believe the gospel, they too will likewise perish. You better be thinking about your neighbor. You better be thinking about unreached people groups. You better be thinking about people that are going to face God's wrath. 
And maybe right now you're thinking about people that are gonna face God's wrath. You're grieving the future fate. He has the right to bring judgment today and he very well may. But the fact that God has not yet wrought judgment on mankind means he is still waiting patiently for more to come to repentance. That means that that lost relative of yours, your neighbor, the lost, the unreached people around the world, there's still time because God is still bearing patiently vessels of wrath prepared for destruction so that sinners would come to repentance. Had God destroyed Adam and Eve in the garden, or shoot, had he, had he brought his judgment 100 years ago, or 50 years ago, or 10 years ago, or, or for some, two weeks ago, or maybe even for some right now, what would happen to you and me? How would we have become vessels of mercy? If God had exercised judgment years ago, how would you have become a vessel of mercy? God bears with vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He endures with them for the sake of the elect for the sake of those who were to believe in him and be brought into the kingdom. Paul wrote of his firsthand experience in God's patience. He says in 1 Timothy 1, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And Peter also speaks of, of God's patience. He says, he says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now the question here is who is all? Is, is Peter describing all humanity? Well, in this very same passage, he speaks of, he warns against the judgment of the ungodly. And so Peter is under no delusion that all humanity is going to be saved. So it cannot mean all humanity is going to reach repentance. Who then is all in 2 Peter 3, 9? Because this is important because 2 Peter 3.9 is thrown out as a supposed trouble passage in the argument against divine sovereignty. So who is the all? Who is the all who should reach repentance? Peter did not say, but that more should reach repentance. He, go, Beth, bring that back up for me, please, if you don't mind. Peter did not say, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but he's waiting patiently in the hopes that more would reach repentance. 
He says, but that all should reach repentance. All implies finite. You can measure all. At some point, all is going to be complete. All will reach repentance. And and the question is, who? The elect. To whom did Peter write? To the elect exiles of the dispersion in 1 Peter. In 2 Peter 3, 1, says, this is my second letter to you. So who's he writing to? He's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And he says, I want, God is waiting patiently until all reach repentance. All who? The context is the Noahic flood. He says, you should not be arrogant, thinking that because the the, the coming judgment hasn't happened, that it's never going to come, that you're never going to stand accountable to God. Think about the days of Noah, when the, when the earth was deluged with water. And, and what, think, about, think about Noah. Noah was building an ark for like 100 years, and there was no rain, and no rain, and no rain. And then all of, families, all of Noah's family got into the ark, and then two of every species got into the ark, and then what happened? Then the Lord closed the door, and the rain fell. And Peter is saying the, the world is currently waiting, not for a deluge of water, but a fire. And the judgment is coming, and when is that judgment going to come? When all have reached repentance. All who? Well, according to Paul, all who were foreknown, or all who were to believe in him for eternal life. So God is patiently enduring the scoffing, the rebelling, the wicked hearts of sinners so that all who were foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified from before the foundation of the earth will come to repentance and receive God's mercy. And the fact that I'm still preaching today means that God is still waiting today and there's time for people to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if, if right now your, your, your thought is cursing God because he's a wrathful God, then you are why he's waiting. Repent of that rebellious heart. He is God and he has every right. And he's not squashing you like a bug today because of his mercy. So repent and believe the gospel today and be saved and receive his mercy. Peter warned the reader in in, in 2 Peter 3, he warns the reader of the coming judgment. He he appeals to the Noahic flood. Listen to why God says he flooded the earth and, and only Noah and his family survived. In Genesis 6, 5 and 6, this is what the Lord saw. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in, all the, great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think about that. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How many, words, how many more ways can you, talk, can you describe the total depravity of humankind? 
And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now my question is, has anything changed? Has anything changed? Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only continually evil. Consider Paul's warning to Timothy about mankind in the last days. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Well, that's going to be an awful day when this comes true. You should have scoffed at that because it's true today. Amen? Okay. Nothing has changed. Mankind is thoroughly sinful. And as we reflect upon divine sovereignty and human responsibility, we, we cannot begin from the position, the perspective that God owes us salvation. If you wrestle with this, it is because you believe that God somehow owes salvation to sinners. That is a defaultive, uh, a, a defective worldview. It is wrong. God does not owe mercy to anyone. God owes all of us what? Yes. Death, wrath, punishment. Why? For the same reason that you're ungrateful, conniving, reckless, disrespectful nephew deserves to be kicked out. And think about the disparity between you and your nephew compared to you and God. God owes us destruction. He owes us wrath. He does not owe us salvation. He patiently endures with vessels of wrath in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Our God is a merciful God. He owes none of us mercy. Yet he chooses to bestow mercy on those who would believe the gospel. In the following verse, Paul explains who the vessels of mercy are. He says, even we who have been called. He tells us who the vessels of mercy are, we who have been called. But he does not identify vessels of wrath. And I think this is important because this is not an us versus them. 10 years ago, 15 years, well, whatever the math is, at, at some point in my life, I was the object of wrath. And now I'm a vessel of mercy prepared beforehand. 
It's never an us versus them. Paul doesn't identify who the vessels of wrath are and neither should we. We should see every person that we ever meet as a potential vessel of mercy and we should love them and if the Lord allows us, we should share the gospel with them. It should never be an us versus them. The vessels of, there are some people who think they're vessels of mercy today who are gonna realize a very hard, sad, tragic truth. Matthew 7 says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. And there are some people sitting in this room today or watching online who if they were to die today would face God's wrath, but God has not judged them yet. God has not come yet, he's not called them home yet, and they will become the recipients of his grace and mercy. It's never about us versus them. Paul tells us who are the vessels of mercy, but he never tells us who are the vessels of wrath. We can draw our own conclusion if vessels of mercy are those whom God has called, and we know that we are called, this goes back to Romans chapter eight, if we, if we know that we are called, why? Not because we're a member of a church, not because our parents raised us in the church, not because we did some religious thing, but because we believe the gospel. How do you know you're part of the called? How do you know you're part of the elect? You believe the gospel. It's real to you. It's in your heart. You know your only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. That is why you know that you are called. And so if the called are the ones who believe the gospel and they're the vessels of mercy, then the vessels of wrath are those who refuse to believe the gospel who refuse to acknowledge I'm a sinner in need of a savior, who refuse to humble themselves before God and instead exalt themselves like Pharaoh did, who harden themselves against God and rebel against him. It's interesting also, this is a, a small nuance, but I think it's worth drawing out. In verse 22, he says, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And in verse 23, he says, vessels of mercy he has prepared before for glory. It's clear who has prepared vessels of mercy. It is clear who acted regarding vessels of mercy. God has acted, but it is silent about who has acted regarding the vessels of wrath. Why is that? Because no one needs to act for a vessel of wrath to be prepared for destruction. No one needs to act because in Adam all sinned. Because the default status of mankind is sin and rebellion and we are all, Paul says, we all fall short of the glory of God and we all are owed death. So God doesn't have to prepare us for destruction. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't say who prepared the vessels of wrath for destruction. 
and neither should we. Some people read in this and they, 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 they get tripped up over the double predestination so God would create some people in order to destroy them and some people in order to bless them. Well, if that's what God did, he's, who's gonna judge him for that? But that's not what it says. It says that the vessels of wrath are prepared for destruction. Who did that? Well, if we look to Pharaoh, the context here, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, he exalted himself, and then God hardened his heart. Every sinner that faces judgment will stand before God and they will know that they have hardened their heart against him. They are prepared for destruction because that is the default status of all mankind. But God works on behalf of vessels of mercy and he prepared us beforehand for glory. Now, in the media context, Paul is speaking of the unbelieving Jews of his day. He's answering that question, why, why don't all the Jews believe this Jewish Messiah? But in the broader context, this applies to anyone who continually persists in rebellion against God. And rather than humbling themselves, exalts themselves. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that no one has an excuse. Last week I shared with you that on judgment day there will be no whimpers of why have you punished me? There's not gonna be anyone whimpering saying, but I'm innocent. God, and you're, this is so mean. Why would you do this to me? Instead, there's gonna be reviling and blaspheming and cursing and gnashing of teeth on that day. And one of our ladies emailed me this week and said that this reminded her of Revelation 16 which says the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. This is the beginning of, uh, of the judgment on the earth. This is covered in Revelation 16. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. And what did they do? They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Does it surprise you that in the end, mankind will refuse to repent and give glory to God, but rather they will curse God in his judgment? If it does, it reveals a deficient worldview. That is a worldview that sees humanity as innocent victims of an angry God. It makes God the aggressor and the oppressor, and that is blasphemous and it's untrue. What the word of God has painfully revealed time and time again is that we are the rebels, we are the aggressors, and we, not he, deserves judgment. Blessing of blessings that our God bears with vessels of wrath so that vessels of mercy might be shown the riches of his glory. He has every right to annihilate mankind right now. Yet he endures patiently while vessels of mercy reach 
repentance. So, deep diver, plumb the depths of theology, of doctrine, of the Word of God. Go as deep as you can go as you contemplate divine sovereignty and man's responsibility. Only when you have reached your capacity to comprehend, return to the surface humbled that you have barely left. And take a deep breath of God's sovereign mercy and exhale gratitude that he waited patiently for you to reach repentance as a vessel of mercy that he has prepared beforehand for glory. And instead of getting wrapped around the axle about this doctrine of divine sovereignty and man's responsibility, get busy bringing other vessels of mercy into the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, without him, there is no hope. Apart from Christ, we are all objects of your wrath because we have all snubbed our noses at you and exalted ourselves, and we have dethroned you in our lives. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves like Job in dust and ashes and come before you, Lord, with gratitude and an eagerness to go and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that all will reach repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.